Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us. This is episode two of the Marketing AI Show. My guest is Christy Olson, head of search within the global media team at Microsoft. Christy has more than a decade of experience in digital marketing, leading both in-house and agency teams across the retail, travel, automotive, and consumer electronics industries. She serves on the advisory boards for the Paid Search Association and Internet Marketing Association. She's an internationally recognized speaker, a published author in the Applied Marketing Analytics Journal, and a regular contributor to Forbes, AdAge, Marketing Profs, and Search Engine Land. In other words, Christy has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share. Our discussion today focuses on conversational AI, technology that can hear, speak, understand, and engage with your audiences. We cover chatbots, voice search, and ever-evolving consumer behavior. Before we get started, let's take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, HubSpot. HubSpot creates a powerful and easy-to-use CRM platform. It's designed to empower marketing, sales, and service teams so they can focus on what matters, generating leads, accelerating sales, and creating better customer experiences. And with access to helpful educational content, a supportive community, and hundreds of app integrations, you'll have everything you need to scale growth without scaling complexity. Learn more at HubSpot.com. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show. I'm joined today by Christy Olson, head of search within the global media team at Microsoft, where she leads all paid search efforts for the company, which is a new role, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Welcome, Christy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for doing it. So we're going to focus on conversational AI today, but you guys have this great new ebook, I guess we'll call it, Marketing with a Purpose. And I, I definitely want to spend some time on that. I feel like that could be Based on how deep that goes, it probably could be a series of episodes just about each topic. So we'll try and touch on some of those topics today. But why don't we get started with head of search? That's new. So as our lifetime of knowing each other, I think you've been head of evangelism over the last few years, and you've moved into this new role. Tell us a little bit about what your focus is now. Yeah. So for the last five years at Microsoft, I was the head of evangelism, which was a lot of an external facing role, going out and speaking at conference and events and with companies, I would say Fortune 1000, but just companies across the globe as to how does search and digital marketing fit into their strategy and fit into what they're trying to accomplish as a business. I have been in paid search for almost 20 years now and or paid and organic search. And they had an opening to actually lead all of Microsoft's internal search efforts. So I'm wow. running the team that does all of search on behalf of the company globally, which is wow. busy. Yeah, I, could, I mean, probably not as busy as, you know, traveling to 80 events a year, but it's busy from different different perspective. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's also interesting because when I first started at Microsoft 2006, I was in a division in a similar type of role where we we're running the internal search at Microsoft. Okay. Yeah. And so it's sort of fun to come back and see how has this evolved over the last 15 years? So that, um, how has it shifted and changed? But now I actually have telemetry over every line of business across Microsoft and global. That's awesome. Well, it actually kind of gives me a jumping off point here. 2006, so obviously our topic is artificial intelligence, machine learning, like how it plays a role in conversational, but also search and paid. Was AI being talked about in 2006 when you first joined Microsoft? Automation was, but not AI, not okay. to the level. It wasn't really around 2000 and 
trying to think the exact year because they all blend together at this point. I think it was about 2009 when we launched Bing that we really started having the conversations about AI and the role that AI plays within the search space. Because up until like the 2009 timeframe, all the algorithms for optimizing search were manual. So it's literally coders in the background were writing the algorithms. They weren't quite, they were using some aspect of neural networking and the algorithms, but it wasn't fully automated. When we launched Bing, that was the thing is we went from having a core algorithm engineer and somebody responsible for components of the algorithm to using deep neural networking. So today Microsoft has thousands of employees dedicated to AI, right? I mean, there's- yeah. There's, we have an entire division to AI and research, and it's it's fun when we talk organic search. People want to like, what are the ranking factors? I'm like, well, for how, we have, I think it was like 275 nodes within the neural network that count for ranking factors, and each individual who searches has a slight different variation based on their history, their behaviors, how they've engaged with results. Because our goal is to provide the most relevant results based on the query and how people engage and interact with the search results. So it really is fully AI (laughs) at this point in time. And you, I've heard you mention like Bing is the biggest AI application within Microsoft. I mean, that's kind of how it's viewed as it really is an AI engine now. It is. It is fully AI engine. So in, I, I speak, like I said, a lot on organic search and paid search. Right. And people will ask like the algo. It's like, well, there isn't an algo. There are multiple algorithms. They're all part of different nodes. They're looking at the different factors that come right. in. I think in the AI Academy, you have myself and Frederick Debu go mm-hmm. actually go through and talk about the algorithms. And we talk about like how has the algorithm shifted and changed over the last, well, he goes all the way back to, I think it was like 19, the 1950s, mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. like yeah. how, how has AI been infused into our algorithms over the last 15 years, 10 years, and where we're at today? And I think it's, it's just a cool takeaway for the average marketer who may be new to AI and think they missed the boat. And, and the reality is, like you just said, even at Microsoft, you think about the big leaders in AI, there's like six of them, and Microsoft's obviously one of them. And and yet, it was only 11 years ago that they weren't really doing it yet. And, and so, like, in marketing as a whole, like, as a profession, there's so much uh, a lack of understanding and adoption of AI in specific use cases for, like, the daily life in email or content or paid search. But that's okay. Like, this is still relatively new. AI goes back decades but its use in marketing is still a relatively new concept. And so if this is like maybe the first time you're even sitting down and listening to something about AI, you're not that far behind. Most of your peers still haven't figured this out either. Well, and it's interesting because like I've I've sat in multiple different business groups at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And depending on the group you talk to, depends on their level of sophistication with artificial intelligence, where some of them, it is very basic and is not fully automated AI. They are to the level of, they're creating the algorithms to help them get to like lead scoring. Yep. And that is the level of sophistication they're at versus when you have like Microsoft advertising and Bing as a search engine, they're full instruments of AI. And so you have different levels of sophistication where I'm at now, the team I'm on, we're considered global media. We run the media on behalf of all Microsoft from display to social to paid search. It all sits under us. Each team has a different, a slight different application of AI that we're using. We aren't necessarily AI experts. We're not going and doing the coding on the back end, but we are leveraging AI tools and technology. And so even there, the level of sophistication, the level of knowledge and experience varies 
team to team, person to person. So it's never too late. It's dive in and learn. And I think that's probably representative of what we'll often tell people your future is going to be like as a marketer. You don't have to build the machine learning algorithms. You don't have to know exactly how the algorithms work. What you have to know is what's possible and that there may be better ways to do what you do every day. And to your point, if you're managing paid or managing organic or whatever your role is, to know there might be smarter tools out there that can help you do that better, more efficiently, drive yeah. you know costs down, drive performance up. And so you're not doing, go back to 2006, like the all human powered rules-based <laughs> approach. And that's really how we look at it is like traditional marketing, traditional automation is all human all the time. We're moving into a phase where it's part of the time it's machine powered, that there is this intelligence that can be built into tools where it takes some of that off of the marketer, where they can actually do some of the repetitive tasks or some of the predictive modeling, things like that. Yeah. And that's like, um, we're having the conversation within my team today within paid search, there's some automation that can happen on the bidding side. We are talking about, we use a tool today for our bidding and we want to actually take their tool and add in the search engine layer of their automative bidding on top of the tool that's used today. So it is the AI layer that's going to be on top of an algorithm that somebody else is managing. So it's the, how do you add that automation in on top of the manual human work that is happening in the tool sets at this point in time? Like we are going down that path and probably starting that next, I'm hoping next month. (laughs) We are are working on the integration of getting the right level of data into the the tool sets on the back end to make sure that it can happen on a regular recurring basis. So it, it goes back to, you have the crawl, walk, run. You're not going to run, but you can start with the crawl. Right. And you don't flip a switch and everything just becomes intelligently automated. This is, <laughs> it is a process. It's a ta- one task, one use case at a time, basically. Yep. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about conversational AI, which was the topic, you know, we were going to focus on today. Just let's start with just the broad, what is it? I mean, we hear about it as a kind of a category of marketing now as conversational marketing, conversational sales and, and AI's role within that. How do you think about what conversational AI is? Yeah. So how I think about conversational AI is it's technology that can speak and listen, allowing pretty much anyone to engage. So conversational AI, it's the idea of listening and speaking and being able to respond coming back. And when you break that down, there's different components and different types of conversational AI that I would almost say that as I started talking about conversational AI, it went all the way back to 2016. And when I was talking about this in 2016, not a lot of people had really been engaging with conversational AI. Today, I would say almost everyone has engaged in the last six months with some sort of conversational AI, whether you realized it or potentially didn't. What would be applications of conversational AI? Like what would be some examples where someone might engage with it? So I put it in two different areas. So on the speaking can listen would be a chatbot is a really simple conversational AI interface. And right now today, a lot of customers customer service applications across websites around the globe are chatbots. Even some of the telephone trees, so IVR technology, yeah. are using very basic, You, they ask you, do you want to talk to customer service? Do you want to talk to, like, here's the phone tree? That is also a conversational AI. Granted, it's not as sophisticated, unfortunately. The telephone side just has not kept up with, right. <laughs> with the internet side. It makes me very sad. Um, <laughs> and the more sophisticated side is when you go down to Siri, Alexa, Cortana, the right. Google Assistant, where they are much more sophisticated and they're using a lot of different cognitive services to help them with those levels of sophistication. 
So Cortana, you mentioned maybe not as household of a name to the, the no. you know the average person, but you know it's it's a very innovative application of AI within Microsoft, and it actually is probably embedded in more areas than people know. So what is Microsoft's play there? What is Cortana and how is it used and how we, as marketers, maybe we interacting with it and not even realize it's part of the experience? Yeah, so Cortana has actually changed and shifted over the last five years, four years. And I think since really we, I started engaging with her back in 2016 in the Cortana team, where originally we were at Microsoft doing a direct compete to Siri, Google Assistant, and Alexa. So we did actually make a play to create our own series of smart speaker devices, similar to like the the Google Home or to the Alexa. And they've sort of pulled back on that, that by the time we got into the market, and and maybe this is my, this is my opinion, this is not Microsoft. (laughs) By the time we got into the market, they were so, those other two were so embedded that we just couldn't get the traction that we needed to say, okay, do we continue down the path of manufacturing devices on the day-to-day basis, we had had a conversational language framework and we made it so that framework does work with Alexa. Google wasn't interested in working with us directly yeah. for some odd reason, who would have <laughs> thought um, to speak, but essentially creating that conversational framework so that you right. can ask Alexa a question. It can go into the Microsoft ecosystem. So um, I'm trying to think when we created this, we had a framework sort of of productivity versus utility and function. And so Microsoft and Cortana tends to focus toward productivity. It tends to focus more on helping you get things done within the work stream versus Alexa, you ask to play music and engages with other IoT devices. Same with Google Home, Google Assistant, they're into other devices. Ours is on the productivity side. And that's where we've, we've moved from trying to be everything to every device to now focusing on Productivity. So Cortana, if you have Outlook, there is an, a way to use Cortana in the email to set up meetings where Cortana looks at your calendar. If the other person's using Outlook, it'll automatically schedule your meetings for you and it'll send notifications. So it's just a assistant on the back end to help you get things done quicker, right. easier. That's cool. You talked a little bit about assistance. So in the course you created for us, the How May I, AI Help You, you talked about the difference between chatbots and digital assistants. What's the thinking there? What is a digital assistant? When you think about like where this is all going, how do you think about digital assistants? And part of it might be what you just said with Cortana, where it's actually truly there and predicting needs and like helping take actions. Yeah. So I think when we, in the course, I think I broke down conversational AI into sort of three areas and digital assistants sort of bridges all three of them. Okay. Um, where you talk about Alexa is based on skills and action. So you are teaching that intelligent agent to do something. So you're asking Alexa or the Google Assistant to go to that device. Like for me in my house, it's go to my nest, adjust the temperature. So it is, you're teaching it to do something that engages. It could be IoT or it can engage with the website. It can do something on that end. A chatbot facilitates and has a conversation. And there you can get to that predictive text. You can get to the predictive of helping accomplish a goal. I joke Q&A instead of question and answer. In the age of conversational A, it's question and action because yeah. most people want to get to an action, not just the answer. They want the answer and then they want to do something. And then you have voice search, which queries a search engine and it's just using voice versus text and typing. And so a digital assistant can use all of those components together to help essentially be your virtual assistant and help you get things done, help you schedule, maintain, and organize. Do you think we're there? I mean, do you you use any of them in terms of like actually helping to manage your life yet versus individual (laughs) just tasks? 
I do a little bit with Cortana, uh, more on the work base. So yeah. a great example, this was I was hiring for my team back in October and I was using Cortana to help with coordinating, scheduling the interviews and getting the documents and data together for the interview scheduling. So I literally automated everything through Cortana so that the meetings were scheduled. It pulled all the right documents into my inbox. When I'd go to have that interview, I had everything where I needed it. It was right there. And it made my interview process, at least on my end, I don't know if it was as good for the applicants, but it made it much easier for me to do this instead of having like 50 emails back and forth to coordinate. So much quicker and easier. But I also use Cortana just for... Like, hey, Cortana, what's happening with my work day to day? So literally, um, it's a little bit easier now. I'm not driving to my car. My example used to be, I, I live 30 minutes away from work. I'd be driving in the morning. I'd have Cortana tell me about my schedule for the day. So in my head, I could start to mentally prepare for the meetings, what I need to get done, sending out messages, setting up like, oh, remind me to do this at this point in time. So I do use Cortana probably more than the average person would, or more like somebody might use Google Assistant or Siri Alexa. One thing I've found, like I, I tried Alexa for a while and then I had to turn it off in my house because like you, I have little kids and they would just ask it stupid things all day long and I would just stop talking to Alexa. So I, I finally just unplugged it. And now they think that the Apple only does music so they don't know to ask it other things because I just like pre-trained them. Like it only knows this, don't bother with, with other stuff. <laughs> so I've kind of like honed in how voice can be used in our house. But what I found with Alexa was... It has all these skills, but like I had no way of knowing what those skills were, like the discovery of them and find like you had to really look. And the way I think about AI is is oftentimes instead of going and saying, what what are a bunch of skills that I could use? I like to say, well, what are the things I do every day? And can it help me do that thing? And not just with voice, but with AI in general. Like I'm constantly just looking saying, okay, I, I come up with headlines for blog posts or I figure out what subject lines use an email or I manage paid media spend. Can AI help me do those things? I don't need this list of like 2000 skills that the thing has that I may use once or twice. Um, so I don't know. I just, just more like <laughs> well, me as a consumer. Like, I well, it's a combination as a consumer, but then also we're talking to marketers right now. And so that's right. where um, I touched on this briefly and I did not go into this in depth in the AI course that I put together, but mm-hmm. you, there's this conversational AI framework and you, you touched on sort of two of the pillars of that framework that marketers need to be thinking about. Discoverability is mm-hmm. failing across the board for almost everything. And I think when I talked at MyCon, MyCon, is it MyCon or MyCon? I always feel like AI, MyCon. Right right there. I guess it's right there for for where you're sitting. Um, When I talked about it, I I did say like the only, and I I still will hold true to this, the, the one thing that for me is still really pushing their skills, NPR. And maybe yeah. it's just I listen to too much radio and I don't have cable television. But every NPR show says, and ask Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant to play All Things Considered on NPR. Like they are teaching people, here's the skill, here's how you use it. 99% of businesses have not taken that step on discoverability. I'll tell you, um, the one I love real quick is Starbucks. And this is like a really practical one. So I drop my kids off every morning, like 740. I have ordered through the Starbucks app. When you order, it'll say, do you want to add this to Surrey as like a request or whatever it is? Now it'll prompt me at that time in the morning, do you want to make this order? And I can just grab it. I was like, oh, you know, place the order for Starbucks and it automatically orders from the right location, the right drink. 
And it's like, awesome. that's just genius. It's, it, it's a thing of safety because I don't have to do anything other than say it. You know, Surrey order Starbucks or whatever. So that to your point about the discoverability, like it's in the app I'm using anyway. And it just took an extra step out of actually probably three steps of pick the order, confirm the locate. And I'm sitting in there for like two minutes and it's only two minutes, but at the same time, I really appreciate that convenience and Dunkin' Donuts doesn't have it. And it goes back to, it goes back to like, um, I I joked with my manager and I was talking to him about coming up with a framework and it for me Mm. was Dewey. And he's like, but that's driving under the influence. I'm like, yes, I know. But (laughs) discoverability, utility, and then interaction and interface, like (laughs) D-U-I. He he was not a super big fan of the Dewey system, but I'm like, hey, (laughs) it's memorable for me. Um, But it goes back to, they discovered that utility. They discovered what is the thing that you, they can help you do. That is the utility behind the skill in the app. Creating a skill in the app for the sake of having a skill doesn't work. It's, it goes back to apps in, I don't even remember what year that was, 2010. Right. Like what people have 400 apps or 200 apps on their phone, but they really only use 15 to 20 of them on a regular basis. And the I is under the interface and interaction. And it goes, how is the person engaging with it? Okay. Are they engaging with it with a screen? Or are they only engaging with it with their voice? So like if I am engaging with something with a screen that I can then go back and look at, it's different than if you're talking to a speaker and you can't actually see it. And the example I give is, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to ask Siri, ask Siri or ask your Alexa how to cook something (laughs) and for a recipe and advice. And by the time it has made it through the ingredients list, I have chicken on the counter and I'm like... And it's telling me heat the oven to 425 and I do that. And I'm like, okay, I need to go back to the 27 other ingredients because it's already telling me (laughs) like now you take and mix these things. I'm like, oh, uh." so like spoken doesn't work, but if it can speak to me and I have the screen to look at it, it goes back to like that framework of how is the user engaging? What is the utility? What is that discoverability piece? Because if they can't discover it, they're not going to use it. If they're not going to use it, why are you creating it? If the utility isn't there, if the need isn't there, if you're not solving a problem or issue, will it get discovered and used? And then that interface of understanding how they're going to use it. So important. I love that. You touched on one that I think a lot of marketers wonder, and I don't know that many have the answer to it. So voice search. So the the theory behind voice search, if we don't search on screens anymore, is it's going to, what they're trying to present is the absolute one correct answer to you. So for brands, for marketers, where does that answer come from? So if, if, if the future of my brand's ability to show up is no longer one of the 10, you know, first links on Google, but it's actually the one response that's given, where is that answer coming from? How, how does the machine learn that? How do they figure out what the right answer is? Is it customized individuals based on voice search history? Let me just talk a little bit about voice in relation to search in that aspect. Yeah. And voice search is actually how I got into conversational AI to begin with, because so many people were asking that question. And even I had that question as I started using, like, I I got an iPhone. When I got my first iPhone, like, where is it pulling this information from? How does it pull the information? Where are we going? So like going down that discovery path on my end is where I really started digging in. So when you ask a question of a digital assistant, I'm going to leave it at the digital assistant level, because I think this is a little bit easier. Because if you think about it, the digital assistants align to a data source. So Alexa and the Amazon ecosystem pulls some of the information from Google and some of it from Microsoft. It is not like a 50-50 split. And then if it's a product purchase or a product-specific bit of information, they pull it from their internal systems because they're going to try to help you make a purchase. And they have a lot of shopping and product-related information. 
if you're on the Google Assistant, it's going to pull from Google. Right. If you are on Cortana, it is going to pull from Bing. So you have sort of two to three sources of truth that pulls from. So within those, and I'm not going to go in depth into Alexa per se, because it will, Alexa and the Amazon ecosystem, it pulls, like I said, product is from there. Uh, other queries, it will sometimes pull it from Google and Bing. So it sort of holds true on both. But when you ask a question, like, how do I get red wine out of a carpet? I have, not I have that you've ever had to do as that. You, as but. you can see, I have light colored carpets. <laughs> And I have small children, which you can sort of, uh, if I go this way, you can. Eh. So the wine is needed and sometimes it gets knocked over. Especially during COVID. Um, when you ask that question, what ends up happening is the digital assistant then goes to the search engine of record and it looks for a couple different things. It, pull, it either pulls from an instant answer, which is the knowledge graph within the search engine, or some of them, the engineers have hard-coded. They have hard-coded responses or essentially a database. If I ask, what is the capital of Washington? It knows, like it's a fact. It just pulls from there. It doesn't need a search query. But if you're a brand, it is pulling a lot of times from the knowledge pane and the instant answers. So the question is like, can you optimize for it? Yes, there is opportunity for all the different questions that get, or not all, but most of the questions that get asked to become that instant answer or that one response that's at the very top of the search bar. It's that yeah. box that pops up. If you're getting into there, that about 40% of the time, well, the last the last re- survey I saw that we pulled it, and I haven't pulled it for two calendar years now, it was about 40% of the time is coming from the knowledge pane, that instant answer box. So organic search optimization is a play that will help with conversational AI. And then it gets to understanding and knowing how do you optimize for voice versus text because Mm -hmm. voice queries are a lot longer in nature. They are more conversational in nature. They do have traditional sentence structure. And as we think about search, like the paid search site I'm on, like the queries we see are typically three to five words in length. When you have voice, you can tell it's a voice query. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very specific question. I always it laugh is specific because, and long. Yeah, years ago, I mean, my daughter's eight now. So this would have been, she was like four, maybe. And she had an iPad and she would watch shows on Amazon Prime or Netflix. And I have a video of this where she actually would say, she would hold the button down. She would say, the episode where the princess meets the unicorn. And then like she would watch and it wouldn't come up. So she would hold it down again. The episode where the princess meets the unicorn and they're in the forest. And then she would wait and hold it down again. And then she would like look at me and be like, where's where's my episode? And so she was learning on her own to keep adjusting her query to try and get the result that she wanted. I was just like so fascinating to watch. Well, like my son is four and I've been watching him do this since he could start to talk. People think I'm joking, but no, literally, we have we have the Google Assistant, we have an Alexa, and we have the Cortana in our house. And he discovered that Alexa can order products, and he ordered he was ordering cookies. And I kept on like I kept asking my husband like, why are we ordering so many? Like, why are Oreos coming? It's because we did not turn off the purchase capability because we weren't using it for purchase. <laughs> but he would go to Alexa and be like, Alexa cookies. <laughs> And so Oreos we add to the cart. One of us would go onto our Amazon account. We'd add something else we needed. We'd check out and all of a sudden cookies would arrive. And we're like, this is odd. We have so many Oreos. Where are they that's all fantastic. coming from? That's, so, that's probably an opportunity there for Oreo and they don't even know. But. Well, and like you hear examples, like I, my favorite is a story on the news of like a child unknowing to the parents ordering like a $600 dollhouse. That happened in Texas, <laughs> I think three years ago. And the Smart parents were kids. a little bit surprised. Yeah. 
I, I love my uh, my daughter. I think was the other one that would do this. She, you know, you'd ask a question to Surrey, and Surrey never had the answer. She'd be like, "Just ask Google." Surrey doesn't know anything. Like, and so they were comparing the digital assistants. Like, which one should we actually ask the question to? I mean, like for brands, it goes back to, and I think I do dive into this in the conversational mm-hmm. AI class of going back and trying to understand, like what what is the intent behind what you're the consumer is getting at? Do you have answers to the questions and the intent they're doing. So like today, I actually was using voice this morning because I have a Surface Book, Surface Book Pro, and I'm missing a couple of buttons on the keyboard because again, I have a four-year-old and 18-month-old and they love to pull the keys off my keyboard. And I had a, a other keyboard that I've been using and it broke. So I'm now on this massive giant oh keyboard that is, that is, it goes so back to computer I have my programmer special. I think it's got everything well, you I, ever want. I had to pull this out of a box in the garage when my other keyboard died. There is not a scroll lock on the Surface Book. Like okay. there's no, there's no scroll lock. I was trying to go into Excel. There is one on this keyboard and I detached my keyboard and moved it and it was just typing up here. I couldn't get the scroll keyboards. Like I could not get the, the scroll buttons to work. And so I was like, <laughs> Hey, Cortana, where is the scroll button on this laptop? <laughs> there is none. And it turns out I had to reattach the keyboard to undo the scroll lock on the keyboard because it set something in the back end of my computer. But like using voice to try to discover something as simple as, oh, plug the keyboard back in, hit the button, call it good. Yeah, I, I feel like I just ask everything now. I want to make sure we leave enough time. I want to talk about this marketing with a purpose playbook. And the, I, I have a natural transition into that. But before we we do that, so for a lot of a lot of brands we talk to, conversational AI to them is like they have a chat bot that maybe has some intelligence in it. How would you guide marketers to to think about conversational AI in terms of how do they really get started and what would be some priorities for them when they think about over the next one to two years of how integral it, it could be into their marketing and maybe just what a couple steps might be for them to take to really get yes. moving in the right direction? Part of the reason this came up so often is as you start to look at the digital assistants and as your brand, people, like you said, we're asking questions, we're engaging so much more. So as brands think the chatbot is like a jumping off window because Satya said this, and I have to think it was billed in 2018, so two years ago. One of the things he said is that digital assistants will start to be able to talk to other digital assistants. So there's going to start to be this AI framework that happens when I ask and I'm just going to use this because Cortana is more on the Microsoft side. We are productivity based. So when you ask Siri, Alexa, or the Google Assistant for something, they're helping you make that purchase. They're helping you discover that path. So the idea is that you would have a digital assistant that's discoverable by those other digital assistants to help with the action that somebody is going to take. Like you said, you have that Starbucks one. Yeah. You could ask Siri to go ahead and place that order or Alexa to place the order. And it knows to go to the Starbucks app. It's already saved as your settings and it does it for you. You don't have to go into the Starbucks app to do that next thing. Like it set up the action right. based on your behavior and history. So that is why it's going to be important is because as these become more integral to our day-to-day lives and as they become more used, that's where it's trending and going is that it makes it easier for the consumer to engage with your brand so they don't have to think. So the chatbot is a good natural first step because you're getting into conversational AI, you're understanding questions, you're providing answers and actions or answers and then getting to that action phase. So really understanding how are customers engaging? How are you doing well? How are you not doing well? 
using cognitive services, which I don't think we've really defined, but yeah. essentially you have a layer of AI that are cognitive services that help you, that help the technology understand images, voice, text, speech. Intent all these, to some in, degree. Yeah, yeah. Intent, getting to there, you can use them all together. So that way if somebody types in veggie versus vegetable, Cognitive AI can understand that veggie and vegetable, when you're talking about pizza, same thing. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, I did not under, I always do this too. I'm sorry, I did not understand. (laughs) Because I feel like they go like this whenever they, that happens. So it's going down that. You're getting reprimanded in a way, asking a bad question. (laughs) Or for using language or verbiage in a way that didn't fully understand. Cognitive services helps you understand and get to that level. So that way, eventually the goal would be as a brand, if you have an action, if you have something you want them to purchase, to engage, to book a service, if you're a hair salon, go in and get the hair done because I haven't done it in uh, nine months. We're not counting anymore. (laughs) I've given up. Um, So that's the jumping off point because at some point they will talk to each other and agents can talk to other agents. Assistants can talk to assistants. So starting there, embedding in those cognitive services, hearing what works well and what doesn't work well, and then essentially I go back to the word optimize, optimizing it, improving over time so that it does provide the better answer, the better service. And that way, as you get to the point of having an agent that can talk to another agent, it is less of a feeling like you're jumping off a cliff and more of a natural transition over time, getting there and getting to that point. So at the core of all of this, and, and this is where I kind of lead into this marketing with a purpose idea, is data. And to, to create this convenience and this personalization for consumers, to be able to respond to them and anticipate needs, these intelligent agents need a lot of information. And so as marketers, and even AI is powered by this data, there aren't a lot of ground rules that we have to follow as an industry of how this is all going to be done. I mean, obviously, there are some some laws put in place, but... For the most part, it's still uh, on each individual organization to be ethical in the way they approach their market. So yes. your team created this marketing with a purpose playbook, and we'll share the link in, in the show notes. But tell us just the, the the idea, the thesis behind this. And I know it evolved from an original idea, but like, why is this important? Because I did I did read through most of it myself before this, and it, it, it felt like it was an entire book on its own. <laughs> But a lot of really critical things around ethics and transparency and privacy. Why should marketers be thinking about this kind of stuff while they're starting to think about the true applications of AI? Yeah, so this I'll, I'll go back to my previous role. So prior to October 1st of this year, my role as evangelist, we did a lot of different research trying to understand everything from like conversational agents, digital assistants, privacy, marketing. Where is marketing going? And this uh, marketing with a purpose came up in all of this research, because as we started digging in and looking at, we did research into millennials and zennials and the different age groups of how they're engaging with brands, tools, technology, how do you build brand love and engagement? We started seeing themes coming out around data and privacy. So I had done a whole bunch of privacy research this time last year, it got launched April of this calendar year. I'm like, gosh, okay. it feels like forever ago. It's like and three years this year. I know. I'm like, <laughs> even, even as, sorry, the complete side, like, I look, I'm like, was that last week or was that a year ago when I did something? Because they all, like, just COVID has made everything just seem like it's, we've had 10 years in one calendar year. But we started doing the research and we came up with these sort of core tenets of how do you build brand love? And part of it is, When people talk about inclusion and inclusive marketing, a lot of people think of diversity and inclusion. 
But people aren't thinking about inclusion in marketing. How do you actually think about consumers and how you are including or excluding them based on the words, the images, the data that you're using? And so this, this sort of came out of brainchild of understanding brand love, brand uh, data and data transparency of moving toward inclusive marketing as a pillar of marketing. How do you think about inclusion of within your data sets? How do you think about including individuals so they see themselves in your advertising or the language that you use? Because we've seen so much happen in the last one to three years of how people are even like gender, gender fluidity. Do you say they, them, z, zir? Right. How do you reference pronouns? As we go into conferences, I I know there's several conferences where I will put a she, her, because that's how I reference myself. Um, My partner who helped, I I was a contributor to the book. It's MJ DePalma's brainchild. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the people that I I gave information. I helped write sections of it. She goes as she, but she also goes as they. And it's been a learning process of like, how do you talk about this? Going back to like marketing with purpose and data, that's where I contributed is more on the data side because... There are so many examples of times when when you collect data, you are excluding information without potentially realizing it. So how do you know if you're excluding or how do you know if you're building an algorithm that is discriminatory? Right. And the examples that I remember going back and reading and talking with the ethics team within Microsoft is like hiring. Let's let's use and um, I'm not. This is not a legal example, but let's right. use Microsoft as a whole. When you look at the breakdown of Microsoft and you look at male versus female, it is not a 50-50 split of men and women across the company. So if you were to build an AI algorithm based on the current employee set, you would skew more predominantly toward men. You would skew less toward people of color. You would skew more toward Ivy League educations, just based on the background we have. Did those factors mean that somebody is going to be successful at Microsoft? No, I'm a woman who went to a state school. Woohoo! <laughs> um, and some of the most successful people I know, including Bill Gates, did not graduate college. Right. So as you're building these algorithms, if you take a data set and like the data set of Microsoft employees and how successful they have been, it is directionally good, but you could be excluding highly qualified individuals because you're only using what you've done in the past. And that's and why- that I- example sounds familiar, it did happen at another major tech company earlier this year. They had trained a hiring model to evaluate resumes based on what they knew a great employee to be. And then they learned that it was basically trained on white males from successful like Ivy League schools. And so they had to shut the algorithm down because it was bias. <laughs> and yeah. that, it and is, the it's the most bias. practical example, yeah. And they introduced bias without realizing. And similar to in the legal system, they tried using AI algorithms to determine, should somebody be released early, yes or no? Oh, that is a slippery slope. (laughs) Anytime you get AI into the legal, but I know where you go, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and they start looking at cases and they start using like how judges sentence individuals and they start noticing that, hmm, there are more severe and longer sentences in certain regions for people of color versus people that are white. Caucasians versus people of color. And so if you train the algorithm based on the sentences and when people are done for early release, no, there's bias in the system to begin with. So how do you get past bias? There's bias in data. So it's not that data is inherently evil or it's good. It's, is there already bias in the system? And that's where I sort of contributed on the marketing with purpose is understanding there is bias. How do you overcome bias? How do you think about making sure that you have 
all sorts of different people included in the process so that you aren't intentionally adding bias in or that you understand where biases might be so you can then gather the right additional incremental data and account for that with what you are doing. I mean, the whole book, again, is great. But one of the takeaways for me was there was a number of checklists in there and it provided yes. a couple of frameworks. And one was like an ethics and, um, and bias checklist of like, here's the things you need to go through before you plan a campaign or before you use data to understand what's in it. So that, yes. that would be a really valuable one for people. Yeah. And I would say overall, the entire book, we cover... I'm trying to remember how many chapters. It, it <laughs> we did was like so many versions. Pages, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, like it's... 80 pages. And I, <laughs> I, I want to say um, we probably cut 10,000 words. Oh, like gosh. getting it to something we would publish, we probably cut close to 10,000 words because we're like, yeah. okay, this is too meaty. This is too in-depth. People are going to get this. And it literally was a, like at one point, it was a 200 plus page book. And we're like, no one's going to read 200 pages. <laughs> Yeah. of a PDF download from our website. So like, let's start cutting. So I'm trying to remember like how many chapters we have, but some of it's even like inclusion in the words you use and yeah. like, how do we speak to each other? Where again, MJ, they, there as pronouns, as well as she, her, she was talking about her experience of traveling where some people think of like LGBTQ friendly hotels. Uh, how do you, what are the words I, yeah, you I use remember, to I show that, that you are friendly? Like, and that is the example we use of like, how do you show that this is a, a hotel that is accepting of people backgrounds? Because she said when she was traveling internationally, not all places were. And when her and her partner would show up, they would not necessarily have the best experience. Right. So how do you then use the words that people are using to show if you are having, if you have an experience that does cater to that demographic? What are the words they use? Not just the words you use, but the words they use as they are searching and understanding then how do you incorporate that into your marketing? How do you incorporate that into how you speak and what you are writing based on behalf of your brand and Cross words. I mean, there's so much. I oh, mean, yeah. the research. Um, at one point, we have three or four different research studies we reference in there. We're talking like we tried to distill 500 pages of research down into 80 pages and take the highlights from it. I mean, there's so much absolutely amazing research. I would highly recommend reading it. And just for your marketing overall, not just the data, not just the AI piece, but how we do marketing as a whole is shifting and changing to think about inclusive marketing as a pillar to create brand love, create brand loyalty that will then help us as we do more with AI and automate. Yeah, and I think it's just a, a movement. You're, I mean, obviously, it's it's gotten a lot of momentum in the last 12 to 24 months, but most of what I've seen is still more at the business level and the HR level and, and making sure that it's all integrated there. But you don't see as much of what you've published, which is what does this mean to marketing and how can we carry these same ideals through to ensure that uh, what we're standing for as a brand is actually represented in an authentic way to our audiences. And you don't unintentionally have bias in, in your uh, your campaigns. So yeah. yeah, just, I mean, such a critical topic and something you know, I'd love to keep exploring down the road. Yeah, I'll introduce you to MJ. MJ, I'm willing to bet, would love to come on and speak. Her and I have been speaking about this for months as the playbook was getting written. And we, her and I, like when we go, start going down this, we'll talk about examples. It, like, three hours later, we're like, oh, we missed four meetings. <laughs> All right. So this has been awesome. We're going to wrap up this episode as we always do with our rapid fire questions for Christy. But first, let me tell you about another one of our sponsors, uh, Pattern 89. Pattern 89 is predictive marketing AI for Facebook and Instagram. It's the first artificial intelligence for marketers and ad agencies who want to know what will make their social ads work before they spend a dollar. 
It's the world's only platform that predicts, assembles, and optimizes top-performing ads. Ready to make your ads more intelligent? Visit pattern89.com. That's pattern89.com to get started. All right, so here we go. Rapid fire to end this up. Are you ready? I don't remember if we said, I don't know if Sandy sent you questions in advance. But. She did not, so Okay, perfect. Let's- <laughs> All right, so this first one is not meant to be a trick question. Voice assistant that you use the most. We asked this of everybody. I did not ask this specific. <laughs> Alexa, Google Assistant, Surrey, Cortana. We don't, the last ones don't use, but we already know you use them. I so. mean, it's somewhere in between, I'd say Siri and Cortana, because I use them okay. both. Like if I'm in my car, I don't use Cortana because Cortana really isn't in my car. So then I right. use Siri. But if I'm at home and on my PC and on my computer, I am using Cortana both from voice and digital assistant side all day long. So, I mean, it's pretty equal. See, I'm kind of like, I'm a Surrey guy a lot because my phone's always with me. But when I actually need to know the answer to something, I go to Google. Like it's Google Assistant. And my, my kid, that's what I said earlier. My kids would be like, just ask Google. Like, why are you messing around with Surrey asking well, stuff like this? We, we will laugh. Like we have a Google Assistant at home, but because of my previous role, like I told my husband, like has to be in the office on a shelf. It cannot show up in the background of any of my videos. <laughs> and I just don't use it because of that. So I'm like, nope, I. <laughs> All right. So next one, more valuable in 10 years, a liberal arts degree or a computer science degree? We didn't get into the more human aspect. I know you had some uh, stuff about how conversationally I can actually humanize marketing. But uh, Mark Cuban is famously said that he thinks liberal arts in 10 years is more valuable. And so I just think it's an intriguing question. It's to a ask. great question. I yeah. have to say, I'm like, it also depends on where you want to go and what you want to do. I would almost probably say, well, if you want to be a coder, then the answer is pretty. <laughs> Right. Like if you want to go into computer science and coding, your answer is there. But I would say the liberal arts degree is valuable because we are becoming experts across so many different topics. So it goes back, do you want to be a mile deep and an inch wide or an inch wide and a mile deep? And I got my hand gestures opposite on there. But, <laughs> but it's the idea of like, I have a marketing background. I don't have a coding background, but I actually do talk to people about like the coding frameworks, the frameworks right. and what you do on that back end. I'm not going to code it. You do not want something I code. <laughs> I'm with you. I can't code anything. My my son can outcode me, and he's like, you know. But like, I think it's I think it's helpful because understand that human component. Yeah, like you said, I think that's is, what he's getting to. Is it's almost like the AI is going to code itself in some ways. I think is his theory that so much of what computer science majors have done historically will be done by machines, and they'll certainly still have essential roles. But it's going to get to the point where so much intelligent automation exists that the people who know what to tell the machines what to do and know what to do with those and know how to interact with humans, like that may end up becoming a more a valuable commodity, I guess. I, you know. Well, it's valuable today. The problem is right. people, like you, I cannot underscore with my team, like the ability to have clear and concise communications to our partners, very important. Always. Let's talk about how to send a nice email. <laughs> <laughs> it's not passive aggressive. Okay, net net effect over the next decade, more jobs eliminated by AI, more jobs created by AI, or it's not going to have an impact one way or the other. I'm going to go, it's not going to have an impact because I don't think, I mean, there's going to be a a distribution of jobs switching. Like you said, there's going to be some of these really, like, I hate using this word, but I want to use it in my head, like menial, like there's menial tasks we do on a day-to-day basis, and I can come in and do that. So that'll go away. 
but it doesn't mean that there's not other roles that people still need to play. So if you think about like even fast food restaurants, automation, and I don't know if that's AI-based automation, but automation has come in to help like, it'll squeeze the ketchup onto the burger and it's the perfect amount of ketchup. You still have somebody that is taking the order and moving things along and making sure like, oh, the customization, oh, this has onions and they said no onions. Like the job didn't go away. It's still there. It's just they're no longer manually squeezing the repetitive tasks go yeah, away. Repetitive but, go away, which is great. I'm trying to convince my team. What can we automate? Like, yeah. what can we get rid of? I'm that, the same way. Just, like, if it can do it, do it because it's going to happen anyway. So we might as well figure it out now you and pull see what this that means. report every month. You have to have this report and this data in this format the fifth of every month. Can we automate it, or do right. you do you really manually need to go in and do it? All right. What does an AI agent win first, or at least share with a human? A Nobel Peace Prize, an Oscar a Pulitzer, or none of the above? Well, I've seen the movie trailer that AI created, and I could not tell you <laughs> what the movie was about, although the other trailer that the humans created was equally like, yeah, that's odd. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'm trying to remember what you have to do to win Nobel Peace so, Prize. So I'll, some I'll give you an example. Been, some uh, of them have been awarded, and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that. So, see, I, I like that one a lot because... I, I, it's it's often for advancements in science yeah. and our understandings. And, and I think like the example I've talked about re, uh, on the show before is AlphaFold from DeepMind and the ability to understand protein folding. That was like, nobody thought that could happen for at least a decade and the machine did it. And so you could certainly see these like major advancements coming over climate change or even vaccines yeah, where it, it became possible because of a deep neural network. I mean, you even think about now, little known fact, my daughter who's upstairs and she'll be coming down soon, she has a pretty rare genetic condition, like one in a million. Mm -hmm. um, she actually has two different rare genetic conditions, one in a million. They had they they did the blood sample early January because of AI and the ability to go through and understand the coding sequence. Previously, that would have taken a long time. It was, I think they had the results back in three weeks. They didn't tell wow. us for another couple of months because they were trying to figure out how to explain to us what it was <laughs> oh. and connect all the dots with the right professionals. Yeah. Like AI enabled them to take the DNA sequence and what used to be bajillion machines running it, it was less than two weeks to discover right. these really weird, rare snippets of DNA missing. And like a, I'm trying to remember CAGT, like which exact <laughs> snippet of protein is missing for yeah. her conditions. So like, yeah. I, I think I, that's what I'm trying to think. Like, I think on the creative side, not quite right. there yet, but I think you're right. The advancements in science, they're already starting to happen. It's just, will they win a prize might be right. the better. Like, right. Agreed. Like, when would that happen? Because we've already started to see some of the benefits. All right. Well. This has been awesome. I mean, again, we could, there's a couple of topics within all of this I could have just gone a whole episode on, but I'm, I'm just so grateful for your time. I know for all of us, especially with little kids at home, it's such a challenge to carve out 40 minutes to talk and not have them running through the background or that's why I just, I, I finally had to come to the office to do mine. My kids would like come stomping upstairs. My daughter like crawl behind me pretending like no one could see her. And <laughs> I go downstairs, she's like, did you know I was there? I was like, yeah, I knew you were there. I saw your little head like poking around. She's like, oh, I was being so quiet though. Yeah, I laugh with my team because uh, uh, sometimes I'll put her upstairs. So the stairwell's right here and she'll literally be like pushing her head through the through the slots. I'm like, well, if I move my, my camera up just right, I can be on a call and I can watch her. I'm like, nope, she's safe. We're good. It's all part of what we're living through today. Welcome so. to COVID. Yeah. 
But thank you again. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience in terms of just trying to process all this stuff and get started is really where everybody is at. I mean, how I started this is reading. Like join something like Macon where you can go through the academy. You can take the classes. I've literally, I can't even tell you how many hundreds of hours I've spent reading websites, blogs, books, talking to individuals such as yourself, as well as like for voice, um, you have the West Waters who are absolutely they're amazing awesome. on voice. Yeah, they are. That Scott and Susan are mm. so smart. And him and I have been on a couple of panels together that like, oh, I didn't think about it from this angle. Now let's talk about this. And just bouncing ideas off of each other. That's how I learn. Yeah. Um, so even as you're getting started, Find the community, ask questions because there's enough of us out there that have been doing this. I mean, I mean, I'm somehow considered an expert four years in on conversational AI, which just boggles my mind. I'm like, (laughs) I feel like there should be a lot more people with a lot more expertise and granularity, but there aren't. And that just is somewhat well, that can make it make sense. There's a bunch of engineers, but like to the people who can actually have the conversation and make it understandable, that's the challenge is like taking what the engineers know and explaining it to other people in a way that's like, oh, okay, this isn't intimidating. Like, well, and I can taking do this. it so that marketers and brands can understand it, understand yeah. that value. I mean, that, that's where you can just start to dive in, start to learn, ingest, and ask questions. I would normally say find me on Twitter, but um, since COVID hit, I've actually gone off of a lot of social media because I needed to take time back to myself. Yeah. So I'm not on tools and technology 18 hours a day like I was. But it's it's not as challenging. Well, it's not that it's not as challenging. It is not as scary potentially as you thought it might be. It just takes a lot of investment time to learn and an open mind and a growth mindset that you can learn it. And I would say um, that Marketing with Purpose playbook, while it isn't 100% AI-based, it does bring up a lot of really great thoughts toward marketers and brands of how you can start to go down the path of how do you build ethical? How do you build in inclusivity into what you are doing from a marketing perspective? And really when MJ and I were going down the path of creating this, Literally, we hadn't seen anybody else talking about it from this standpoint. And we, I mean, literally, like I said, 80 conferences one year. I've been to a lot of events. No one's talking about it from that perspective. It's the HR perspective. We just went through our editorial calendar and we we put it in there as it's always like we got to, this needs to be a core part of what we're doing on the business of AI side. And so I was, that's why I was so happy when you shared it in advance of this. It's like, girl, it's fantastic. Like, this is something we can work with. And yeah, so I'd love to continue those conversations. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I, it's such a privilege and honor to get the the hour to speak with you. Oh, as please. Always. It's so. all, all privileges. Oh my. I mean, it's, I love catching up with you and usually we just get to do it over, you know, you know, over the phone, but it's, it's awesome to be able to have these conversations and share your, your insights with everybody. So thank you so much. I appreciate well, it. Thank you. And have a great day. All right. Thanks everybody for joining us. This has been the Marketing AI Show. Until next time. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.